Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Gist is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash gist and using the promo code gist. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, December 3rd, 2015. From Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. The list of names, the baby name trend has come out, and I guess I have appointed myself baby name ombudsman. Because last year when they came out, the big news reports from BabyNameCenter.com. By the way, I forgot to register my baby names at the Baby Name Center, so they'll never know about it. But they came out with this press release that said, because of the popularity of Orange is the New Black, there are a lot of Orange is the New Black names that were popular. The big winner, they said last year, was Galena, which jumped 67% in the rankings. And Baby Name Center also said that Nikki... Leap 35% and Piper did well. And Larry, like Larry, oh yeah, that's the Jason Biggs character. Wasn't he written out of this year? Anyway, that was last year. Larry was up 28% for boys. Because I am the baby name ombudsman, I put these numbers to the test. And I found out, not to step on another branded segment that we have here on The Gist, but it was bullshit. <laughs> they, not that the numbers weren't true, but here's what they meant. Galena, yes, all those little baby Galenas, they went from five per million to eight per million. It literally went from 10 to 16 Galenas. And all the other, even the Larrys had a similar tiny, tiny baby-esque uptick. Well, this year, Baby Name Center has come out with its press release. And what it, and so many outlets are picking this up. If you if you put it through Google News, you will see that everyone is following up on what Baby Name Center has reported, that the popular social media application Instagram has inspired baby names. Linda Murray, global editor-in-chief of Baby Center, said, it's the first time we've seen technology break through as a source of name inspiration. Photo sharing is a daily and emotional part of millennials' lives, and those two ingredients can trigger love for a name. So which names? Which names are getting popular? Amaro, Amaro, which is a filter in Instagram, is up 25%, they said. So I checked out the math. In fact, it did have that rise. In 2014, there were six babies out of a million named Amaro. And last year, there were eight out of a million. So if you do the math, that means literally four more babies were named Amaro. The Ludwig numbers popped just the same. I have the Ludwig, yeah, that's another filter in Instagram. Hey, Mike, do you have the Ludwig numbers? I've got your Ludwig numbers right here. In 2014... There were 19 Ludwigs per million, and in 2015, there were 28 Ludwigs per million, which means literally 18 more baby Ludwigs. 
clearly Instagram is making an impact. Except for one thing. The Ludwig filter was introduced in 2014, and the baby name Ludwig was in 2013 at a popularity of 36 per million. It is now up to 28 per million, but not even achieving its pre-Instagram filter status. So I will call a big, fat, heaping pile of bullshit on all these baby name trends. The same pop that Amaro got from 6 to 8, I randomly put in Chauncey. It also went from 6 to 8 million. No doubt people really getting behind being there. The Peter Sellers movie starring Chauncey the Gardener. On the show today, I will spiel about, well, speaking of bullshit, I will take one very small sl- On the show today, I will spiel about a, a quite small slice of the coverage of this shooting in San Bernardino. A, a commentator who is so bad it's good, but first, a cancer expert details why there just might be the end of cancer. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for the fraction of the price. I was was seeing an ad for Casper the other day, and it was a happy, happy couple, and they were wearing starched linen-y shirts, and I think the guy was on the mattress, and he was happy, and the girl was sitting next to the mattress, and she was in a yoga-esque pose, but not actually yoga. And you say to yourself, oh, this is just advertising, but it's not, because those people could buy that mattress and wait for 99 days and work out all their yoga poses and realize, hey, Casper is a hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. Downward dog. And you know, mattresses can often cost well over $1,500, side plank, but Casper mattresses cost between $500 for a twin up to $950 for a king size, warrior two. And to get $50 towards any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash gist, insert the promo code gist, Terms, conditions, and namaste apply. Dr. Vincent T. DeVita, oncologist, is credited with developing the first successful chemotherapy treatment for Hodgkin's lymphoma. He has served at almost every level of the fight against cancer, from the political to the trenches. And now he and his daughter, Elizabeth DeVita Rayburn, are out with a new book called The Death of Cancer. After 50 years on the front lines of medicine, a pioneering oncologist reveals why the war on cancer is winnable and how we can get there. Elizabeth, welcome. Thanks for having us. And Dr. DeVita, welcome. Thank you very much. So early on, you tell the story through a friend of yours, uh, a guy named Lee. Is that his real name? No. And you detail everything that you do, and this was after you were already established as preeminent in your field, everything that you do to buy Lee more time, to try to save Lee's life. And you talk about your strategy being the more time we get him, the better treatments will become available and will be invented, and that in turn will get him more time. The story with Lee begins, I think, in the mid-90s. Does that still characterize much of the fight with cancer, buying time and hoping for better treatments during that time? Yes, I think so. You know what happens is when new things come out, uh, they don't come out universally across the country. They come out in spots. You know, they come out in five different cancer centers. And if you have somebody who's right on the edge and they need something new, you have to move them around. I think 
The key to Lee's story was I had to move them around to four or five different places to get access to new therapy. And we still have to do that to a certain extent. There's also the idea people will say, oh, we got him into this hospital. It's the best. Or we got him with that doctor and he's the best. But through Lee's experience, I got the idea there's no such thing as being the best. Some are good for some things, but even Sloan Kettering, where my dad got treatment, where they will always say, oh, that's the best. There are some things that it's not the best for. Yes. I mean, Sloan Kettering is a great institution and Yale's a great institution, but we're not all things to all people. And uh, you need to be able to discern that. I mean, it's, and for a patient, that's very difficult. It's like me trying to find a lawyer. You know, I can't exactly find the right lawyer when I want one. It's not easy to sort of delve into someone else's profession and, and uh, know where to go. But if a patient doesn't ask the right questions and if a patient doesn't maybe make a nudge of himself, does that seriously diminish the patient's chances of survival? It depends. Uh, if, you, if you take a woman comes in and she has a, a small breast nodule, it's cancer, uh, it's not a very difficult operation. It can be done by many, many surgeons around the country. So it's not likely that something awful is going to happen. If the woman has positive lymph nodes, a lot of them, and she needs some special kind of therapy after surgery, then it might make a difference. There again, you've got to rely on your doctor. A good oncologist will know whether he or she can you know, handle the treatment or has the access to the treatment that you, the patient needs. But it's very complicated. I, I wish I had a better answer, but I don't. Well, no, it's a good answer. It's just a sad state of affairs. And a couple other things, again, through reading this one case study, and I think it was well presented, Elizabeth, and you started the book by talking about one person, and through his story, we get to see some of the problems. But you talk about standard of care, which is a phrase I just was barely aware of, and you point out that the standard of care sometimes dictates treatments that aren't even in the best interest of the survivability of the patient. So could you tell me what the standard of care is and how that could be the case? Cancer is a very fast-moving field, and standard of care is, is, is in many cases a problem because it was standard of care yesterday. It may not be standard of care tomorrow. People are locked into delivering it. it other fields don't move quite as rapidly, but cancer is moving very, very fast, and I think uh, you have to be careful about standard of care. Elizabeth, how much in writing this book with your father did you discover about the details? I know that you knew he's preeminent in his field, he's a big deal, but what about the nitty-gritty and what about the stuff from before you were really paying attention? How much of it was new to you? I guess, you know, I'm, one of my images of my, my father growing up um, is seeing him sit in this yellow chair with a pile of journal articles and a yellow highlighter and zipping through those things. And I, I knew what he was doing and I knew how old I was and, and the our journals he was reading and what he was looking for and, and why. And, you know, I just understood a lot of this because my, my brother was also hospitalized there. It's another part of our story um, at the NIH, you know, was taking place on these floors and in this context. And I saw those patients around me then that I saw all the time in a different way and understood why they were there and what they were being treated with. Your brother Ted was, as you said, hospitalized. What was his disease? He had aplastic anemia. Tell us what that disease means. It's a total failure of the bone marrow. It stops producing red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets, which means you're anemic and, and uh, you're, um, you can't fight infection and you, you bleed because platelets prevent you from bleeding. So they, you know, the only way you could survive was to put them inside what we call the laminar airflow room, which is a sterile room uh, where he went. Uh, we thought for a short period of time, turned out to be about eight years. 
he was on the 13th floor of the hospital. You were on the 12th. That's correct, yes. And he was, I mean, if we know pop culture, there were a couple of TV movies. David, the boy in the plastic bubble, I think was the name of one of them. John Travolta started one. It was pretty much ripped off from your brother's life, right? There was a young boy who was born with uh, total immune deficiency that was put into a, a laminate airflow room in Texas. Uh, and uh, it was a whole different disease, a whole different issue. But th- what they did was they blended the two, I think, so they wouldn't be accused of using just one 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 case. But. Yeah. Although uh, Travolta's character was named Todd. Yeah. Your brother's name <laughs> yeah. was Ted yeah. Elizabeth. Yeah. They, they could have been a little more creative with that one. <laughs> How old were you when he was when he went into the hospital? Not to come out for ever. Yeah, I right? was six. He was six. You were six. Mm-hmm. And he was there for eight years. Right. This is almost all of you knew of your brother. Yeah. How did it affect you? I can imagine personally, you wrote a memoir about mm-hmm. this, but how did it affect you professionally? You're a science writer now. I think about that a lot because th- there's a part of me that always wanted to go to medical school. I think had that not happened, I might have gone to medical school, but probably not been as good a doctor because I wouldn't have had that personal experience. But having gone through it personally, I think I was not ready to kind of conceive of a life where I would spend the rest of it in a hospital. I'd grown up in a hospital. Mm-hmm. So I had to think about what I was going to make of my background and how I could help people, but maybe not, you know, live in a hospital for the rest of my life and, and professionally. And so I decided to write about science and medicine and health. What about you, Dr. DeVita? How did it affect you professionally? Well, you know, I always thought I, I really was empathetic with patients who were going through this. Uh, and then when it happened to me, I realized there was another level of pain that, that I wasn't feeling. So, I, you know, I think it made me a better doctor. Um, hard way to get there, but that's probably what, what I would say. Elizabeth, do you think that there is a connection between you wanting to become a science writer, which is explaining things about science, having some level of expertise, but an emphasis on the explaining, and all the confusion that you must have had, not only as a young kid, but the disease itself, there was so much and still is so much unknown about it. Yeah, I think that's that's very insightful. Actually, I, I remember having a conversation with uh, a couple of writer friends at one point talking about kind of stories that might interest me to tell. And he said, you like to articulate the silences. Mm. And I was like, yes, that's it. <laughs> I learned a lot from Elizabeth's book, The Empty Room, uh, because, you know, we tried to protect her by not telling her what was going on. And I didn't really know how it affected her, but she sat there for years thinking that she was next in line to get this. Uh, and so the issue of, you know, do you take children who are in, in this kind of environment and give them accurate information so they can be participants, uh, I think we were wrong. We didn't mean to be, you know, mean or unkind, but we were wrong. We should have really explained it to her more carefully. It saved her a lot of anxiety. Let's talk for a second about Hodgkin's lymphoma. Was this sort of a low-hanging fruit of cancer that once technology started catching up with cancer, this was going to be the first one that was, we could say, you know, it's it's treatable? We, I don't want to use the word curable. What's the right word? It's curable. It's curable. Good. Okay. <laughs> it's it's so, curable. Now, right now, it's curable good. It's, 80, 85% of the time. It's curable. What about Hodgkin's lymphoma makes it curable where other cancers aren't? Well, one of the things, this wasn't readily apparent when we started working, but when you look at the lymph node that's involved with the cancer, uh, the cell itself, the malignant cell, is in the, in, in the minority. It's surrounded by lots of normal cells. And it, it occurred to us that, that, that since there is something that we call the inverse rule, you know, it's the invariable inverse relationship between cell number and curability, 
uh, that the smaller number of cells, the easier it is to cure, that this might be an easy tumor for, or an easier tumor for us to work with with the new approach we were trying in combination chemotherapy. It hadn't been apparent until we started looking at it that way that this might be the case, and it turned out it was. Although at the same time we were curing another tumor that has you know plenty of cancer cells around, so I think it, it was it was a little bit easier because of that. But you say, and this is I think the important point: it hadn't become apparent until it was apparent until you started reconceptualizing it, and the whole book is about all these headbutts, all these fights that you have about conceptualizing cancer. So is this is still a big problem in the field? It's not so much that we don't have a cure; it's that not we're not thinking about about the right ways to get a cure. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, medicine tends to be fairly staid. Uh, you know, you, you, you're very critical of new things. You want to be careful. You don't go beyond what, what the information allows. So there, and there's some of that is good, but I think we tend not to be very imaginative. Sometimes the system that we live in forces us in that direction. You know, you're getting, nowadays you're, you're bound by so many regulations and, and, and uh, things like that that, that you, can't, you can't breathe, let alone think of doing something adventurous. If we were doing the MOP program, which is what the, we use to treat Hodgkin's disease today, we really basically got it off the ground and ran it in about three or four years. It would take 15 years. So you, that's, that's what doctors are facing, and, and that tends to stifle imagination. Okay, a couple quick questions. Is the funding for cancer research where it needs to be in this country? No, but, and it's a big but, and that is, I think, just pouring money without making sure that the organization is flexible enough to use it is not a great idea. So we, we, should, we need more money, but we also need to sort of rethink the whole war on cancer so that we regain some of the flexibility that we had years ago. Is the trend of specific kind of cancers having their own sort of PR arms and, and pink for breast cancer and whatever, mustaches for prostate cancer or whatever's going on now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I'll get in trouble for saying this, but I don't. I, don't I, think I read your book. I don't think you care. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think it's been a particularly good thing. You know, it's a good thing in the sense that you raise money. It's a bad thing in the sense that many of the important advances for diseases like breast cancer, for example, happened in studies that had no relation to breast cancer. So when you pocket this money and compartmentalize it, you tend to to lose the opportunity to, to discover things that will be important to breast cancer, but we don't know that yet. Dr. DeVita, what did you learn from putting all your life's work down on paper? Well, I mean, the message that we wanted to give was that the, the war on cancer is, is, first of all, it's been a big success. Uh, and second is it's winnable. And I think, um, you know, if, if a doctor, if you get a diagnosis of cancer and a doctor says there's nothing we can do for you, find another doctor. Vincent DeVita was for almost a decade the director of the National Cancer Institute and the National Cancer Program. He was physician-in-chief at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital. He was the director of the Yale Cancer Center, and he's a professor of medicine, epidemiology, and public health at the Yale School of Medicine. His daughter, Elizabeth DeVita Rayburn, has written about medicine, science, and psychology. She is the author of The Empty Room, Understanding Sibling Loss, which is her memoir about her brother, Ted. And the new book that they've co-written is The Death of Cancer. Thank you both very much. Thanks. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Shave my face with Harry's today. It's a clean, close, comfortable shave. That's the kind of shave you get from an obsessively engineered razor blade. 
that comes from a factory in Germany that the owner bought. Beyond all that, we got the holidays upon us. And you want to go one of two directions. Let's get him something we know he needs, or let's get him an indulgence that he would never get on his own. Harry's is definitely in the first camp, but it's kind of a work of art. Like, the handle's really great, so it's a little bit in the second camp. I use Harry's not all the time, but when I shave. When I shave, I shave with Harry's, and my face can attest to its quality. This holiday season, Harry's has something for every guy out there, whether it's a secret Santa gift for your office colleague, the guy you know who's seemingly impossible to shop for, or you, you yourself. You yourself may be the one who wants to take advantage of the holiday shaving set with all different different price points. They start at $15, and as a special offer to my listeners, Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase when you go to harrys.com and enter the promo code GIST. Harry's gives back 1% of their sales and 1% of the time to the communities they serve. So go to harrys.com right now as a special offer. Like I said, 5% off your first order using code GIST. Don't wait. Free shipping for the holidays. Free shipping ends on December 10th, so act now. H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter code GIST. Harry's makes every morning feel like a holiday. And now the spiel, the name blame game. The killers in San Bernardino are unusual in that they are allegedly a husband and wife pair. Muslim, he boarded America. She from Pakistan. She lived in Saudi Arabia. Slate's Josh Keating asks, was San Bernardino an act of terrorism? If so, it was an extremely strange one, he notes. And that's true. Rampage killers working as a pair are generally rare. You got Columbine. A man and a woman together, rarer still, though not unheard of. The killers who inspired the Terrence Malick film, Nebraska, for instance. But a combination, man and a woman with elements of workplace violence, but also elements of terror, that would be a first as far as I know. So let's define terror. I think it's becoming a very useless word. Dave Bowditch of the FBI knew that it would be on everyone's mind, so he addressed the question preemptively in his very first comments to the media yesterday. At this point, I know one of your questions is going to be, is this a terrorist incident? I will tell you right now, we do not know if this is a terrorist incident. So we start from the beginning, working with our local partners. Uh, We take the presumption that it, it may be, it may not be. Now, on one hand, this is nuts. Of course it's terrorism. A community was terrorized. But yes, I also know that the official definition of terrorism is using violence to advance an ideological end. And of course, that definition itself isn't great because it includes a lot of motivation that we can't anticipate that's not written down in a manual or promulgated by an imam, like a delusional killer who kills because he hears voices would fall under that definition. But there's also a value to determining if the killers drew motivation or support or instruction from existing groups. And there's a middle possibility too. We saw this in the guys who drove to Dallas and tried to shoot up a draw Muhammad night. They were lone wolves, but they were called to do their deeds by ISIS. They have called for lone wolf attacks. So I definitely think it's worthwhile to find out everything we could find out about these killers' motivation, their inspiration, and their support. It's also worth noting that we really should keep in perspective that there have been about twice as many killings by right-wing extremists as from jihadists since 9-11. And in fact, both of those numbers, 48 and 29, 
pending what we learn about the Planned Parenthood killer. They are, of course, absolutely dwarfed by mass shootings of a more garden variety. ShootingTracker.com says the U.S. has seen 355 mass shootings so far in 2015. And of course, mass shootings are a tiny, tiny single-digit fraction of all the homicides in the United States, 35,000 gun deaths. So it's a subset of a subset of a subset, maybe. Still, you can't disagree with anyone who says, let's not jump to conclusions. In fact, it seems these days the traditional stages of grief have to be augmented by these three other stages. Jumping to conclusions, asking everyone else not to jump to conclusions, and waging battle over who is saying, don't jump to conclusions about which shooters. Oh, you say that about the Planned Parenthood shooter. You wouldn't say that about the San Bernardino shooter. Oh, the thing you're saying about the San Bernardino shooter, you were telling us not to jump to conclusion about the Planned Parenthood shooter. The jumping part of jumping to conclusions seems really important right now, but pretty soon the conclusions will be known, and then we'll all have to grapple with the possibility that there was a jihadist element to these attacks. Okay, what's the harm in concluding right now into saying, eh, it looks like there was, it's likely that there was a jihadist element to these attacks. But the real conclusion that we shouldn't jump to is about Muslims in general, or Muslim Americans in general. I think most media is careful not to do this. I think even Fox News is careful only to do this in kind of coded ways. But this morning, Fox sought to explode the code. This is an interview with Fox News contributor and psychiatrist, Dr. Keith Abloh. Because he shot up a holiday party. Generally, we think of holiday parties as, you know, revolving around Hanukkah and Christmas, and maybe he just didn't like that. Okay, you're a psychiatrist. Go on. Right, the president wants to talk about gun control while America's bleeding. Well, that's because it's bleeding from bullets, and to clarify, not bullets that were thrown at or pushed into human bodies. The bullets were actually fired from guns, so that's why you'd want to talk about gun control. Why would the president want America to disarm when we are under assault by radical Islam? Interesting. Why? You mean beyond the fact that guns are a means of killing? Well, Let's note that he is not disarming America, whether he talks about it or not. America is decidedly not disarmed. And still, the assaulters seem pretty undeterred to attack a fairly well-armed America. But let's move on. For you are certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. You know, uh, we don't have the facts. You're right. Okay, wait, uh, please, oh, no, 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 please, please don't let this prevent you from saying some stuff. I mean, please don't rely on that old, I'm a journalist, I have to wait for the facts dodge. But as uh, a journalist, as someone who tries to put together stories in my office as a psychiatrist and make sense of them, the one that would make sense without all the facts would be something happened at the party that led him to say, that's it, I've had it. Maybe he said, why aren't we celebrating my hollies? Maybe this was a Kwanzaa-related killing. Go on, go on without your facts, doctor. Maybe somebody said something uh, that he considered off-color about uh, his faith, uh, and he decided, look, now it's go time. Listen, if somebody named Saeed leaves your party and people say, why is Saeed leaving? You know what? Call the cops. Wow. Wow. Listen, if somebody named Saeed leaves your party and people say, why is Saeed leaving? You know what? Call the cops. By the way, babycenter.com says that Saeed is the 722nd most frequent name, higher than Amaro Ludwig. And Larry, more Syeds than Larry in the last few years. So there are quite a few Syeds, but know this, if you invite a Syed to the party, you better keep him there the whole time. Otherwise, five O's rolling up. Wow, if Syed leaves your party, call the cops. How can he say 
if Syed leaves your party, call the cops. And then I was thinking, well, maybe it's it's one of those sayings like my very excellent mother, one of those mnemonic devices. Maybe he's trying to remember major cities in Illinois. Syed leaves the party, call the cops. SLPCC. Springfield, Lake Grove, Peoria, Chicago, Cicero. Syed leaves the party, call the cops. Maybe he's trying to remember. He works on Fox, right? So maybe he's trying to remember obscure members of the Reagan administration cabinet. Richard Schweiker, Drew Lewis, Sam Pierce, Laurel Cavazos, and Frank Carlucci. Syed leaves the party, call the cops. S-L-P-C-C. No, it's pro- maybe it's countries we need to wage war with. Syria, Libya, Pakistan, China, Canada. Syed leaves the party, call the cops. But maybe this is more of a, a function of he's planning a party. There's so much to do. It's about, it's about hosting. It's about entertaining. You know, hospitality, right? And there's you, you, to time all the dishes coming out and how do you deal with every individual guest? It's hard. So you, so you come up with little, maybe little jingles to teach yourself. All right, what do I do? What do I do in this situation? What do I do when Syed leaves the party? When Syed leaves the party, call the cops. All right. That's helpful. When Syed leaves the party, call the cops. Here we go. When Mustafa's got a motor, when Amir's got a roll, when Syed leaves the party, call the cops. This is helpful. When Ali drinks some punch, call the cops. When Bilal asks for second, call the cops. When Abdullah hangs his coat up, when Kareem asks you for a refill, when Muhammad got invited in the first place, call the cops. When the seer compliments your tie, call the cops. Call the cops. When Syed leaves the party, call the cops. Call the cops. Keith Abel thanks for your expertise, years of schooling and insight, and for teaching us when Syed leaves the party, call the cops. But please, don't jump to any conclusions. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi was named after that naming trend of the 1980s where little girls were named after luxury liners that sank 25 years prior. The Just's executive producer is Andy Bowers, He was named for that trend where parents would name their little boys after ball-shaped CBS news commentators who wouldn't get the job for about 10, 12 years. The Gist is hosted by me, Mike Pesca. As you can imagine, I was named for the thing I would talk into every day for hours and hours. So for a 12-year period of my life, I was named Clown Mouth Pesca. But eventually, I rode through the drive-thru and cut out saturated fat from my life. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.